welcome to Beyond the Crucible. I'm Warwick Fairfax, the founder of Crucible Leadership. I dared to ask myself, if I was young again, what would I want to be learning? Hypothetical question. The amazing thing was the answer came immediately to me, immediately, and it was fashion design. Don't ask me where it came, it came immediately. So I'm still not sleeping and I start researching programs and I'm going in to see what schools, what's available. And then I see uh, interior design. I'm like, well, maybe I should do that at my age. And then I went, no, Nancy, you're just dreaming. This is the practical is stay where you're at. This isn't about being practical. This is about a fantasy if you were young. Well, I start researching it. I, by the next week, I was in New York touring two of the top fashion schools. That seems like a pretty quick pivot to a new life, doesn't it? But then this week's guest, Nancy Volpe Berenger, was in her late 50s when the moment she describes happened and she didn't want to spend one more minute of her life doing something other than what brought her heart alive. Hi, I'm Gary Schneeberger, co-host of the show. On this week's episode of our series, Second Act Significance, Volpe Berenger explains that the success and security she had built professionally over several decades didn't fully scratch the creative itch she felt as a young girl who loved to sew. That's when she pursued a fashion career with vigor, earning a master's degree and finishing as runner-up in season 18 of TV's reality show smash, Project Runway, where she discovered her couture calling, designing accessible, adaptable clothing for those who haven't historically had access to high fashion. Nancy Volpe Berenger has found second act significance, and you can too. Well, firstly, Nancy, thank you so much. And I love kind of what you do with your two lines, the Nancy uh, Volpe Behringer clothing line, the Couture brand, and then the Vault by Volpe Behringer, just the adaptability for disabled. I mean, that's so inspiring. And we'll get to that kind of story in Project Runway and the choice you made that not everybody else did, that you would just felt a call to that. So it's so inspiring. And also, really, it's inspiring that you began this journey in your late 50s and it's now in your 60s as somebody that's also over 60 and just had my book, uh, Crucible Leadership, come out last October 2021. It's easy to think, gosh, it feels a little late, like couldn't have happened 20 years ago or something. So uh, I'm just so impressed by your uh, by your example. So uh, I'd like to kind of go go back a bit before you launched into your just incredible vision, your, your fashion vision. No, life wasn't exactly easy. And at one point, you were a single mom with two small kids. So just as a backdrop, tell us a bit about your life growing up. I mean, it sounds like you had enjoyed sewing and just different things. So there was some, there's, there's part of the origin story of Nancy Volpe Behringer as you grew up and things you enjoyed. So just tell us a bit about that. Well, it seems like I've been following this roadmap, not knowing where my destination was supposed <laughs> to take me. But it began, actually, I think that one of the, my childhood crucible moment could be when I took a sewing class. And the only reason I did that was because my mother kicked us out of the house. There were too many of us and we had to go to summer school. So yeah. I took a sewing class and I loved to sew. Instead of weeding the yard, I was had to do all the sewing projects in the house. So that started it. <laughs> But what it wasn't nurtured as a potential career. So it was just something I did because I enjoyed and we didn't have extra clothes. I didn't go out. You didn't go shopping in my household for clothes, but I got to make some clothes. So it was there. It was planted. But then life took over and it became just being practical, surviving, doing what you needed to do to survive, not so much what you wanted to do, because I never really thought in those terms. It was just how to uh, survive, I guess, and um, be independent. So did you ever think about doing fashion or did that really not come up in the conversation? If it did, was it like, well, that's fine, Nancy, but 
you know, come on, let's get a real job kind of thing. How, how did all that happen? What's really interesting is I kind of marched to my own feet right from the get-go because my two older sisters went off to college. And that was actually groundbreaking for my oldest sister because um, that was something uh, new as a female uh, going off to college. I was the one who said, no, I don't want to go to school. Uh, I immediately got a job. I was very shy, but I was also very determined. And I got a job right out of high school, saved for a year. Uh, and then, you know, where all my friends were in school, I went and got an apartment by myself. So it was, I think, driven more. It wasn't even, you know, that what do you want to do? I just, I, I took my own path. And so I was very independent um, thinking, a risk taker, not knowing it. So, yeah, but for me, it was practical. So it was much driven by your internal desire to be practical, to be independent. It wasn't so much people lecturing you. It was just at that, at that time, that's kind of the path you chose. I wanted to be on my own. Yeah. And that being said, Nancy, one of the things you told me when we talked before we were recording here, you said that you'd always been creative. And you said even with spreadsheets and even in business plans and that you never knew why. And that's part of all of that has kind of come together, right? That is so key because my one sister was an art teacher. So in your mind, you think, well, they're the artist. Right. That makes sense. I thought I'm a business person. You know, I I I liked being organized, um, more of a business brain, but I always was creating and I didn't understand the need. So I would be creating again. I love creating spreadsheets. I love creating <laughs> business plans, leadership programs. The crazier, the better. It got to a point in my careers where people would, if they saw me coming down the hall, they'd hide because it's like, what is she up to now? <laughs> so it's like, don't get me involved, but they did. So I just have always had to create in so many small scale to large scale. It was my oxygen, but I didn't know, I, I, I didn't identify it. It just came from within. And as long as I was creating, it seemed I was satisfied. So so here you are, you've you know, left home, you have an apartment and you, you begin in the work world. So talk about those early years and frankly the next decades through the through the 50s because there's a whole story there until you had a major shift so tell us about those years as you're finding your way in life so in my 20s again i i, I became um independent i got my apartment but i also got married and by the end of my 20s i was um divorced a single parent um, unexpectedly from my viewpoint. And at the time it was a two with a two and a four-year-old. Uh, and again, I had no college degree because that wasn't in my, that wasn't in my plan. <laughs> but then I was like, all right, now I need to support my children, but also be a parent. And how can I do that? And I had uh, two sisters that were teachers. I thought, oh, I'll become a teacher because I'll have the time to do both. <laughs> Well, that was quite interesting. So uh, at, I guess, around 30, I went and got my bachelor's degree in business education. And I did it in three years because I was going to run out of total money. And I just had to do it. So I did it in three years. But the plan kind of backfired because as a teacher, I wasn't making enough money. And I found myself working two, three, four, one time, even five jobs, bringing in enough income. So it really didn't pan out the way I thought. But it took me to the next step. Like, so it was always connecting. And you didn't understand why the one challenge took me to another completely new place. And I always loved doing things I didn't know how to do. Again, I that was like intriguing to me. When I got took the teaching job, it was a one-person department in a Votech school, business technology with the oldest outdated thing. But the challenge was to do something with it. And so I've always loved to do that. And so from teaching, then I became an advocate for teachers and school employees and worked for the Education Association, where I really um, had spent most of my career. There's always this, this kind of path, challenge, a bump in the road, something happened. And then I just took a dive and went into a new place. But again, always being able to create. So you're working, from what I understand, in the New Jersey Educational Association. Is that like an administrative group or is that 
So it's it's the it's the biggest teachers union, school employees union. Right, 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 right. Okay, okay. You're advocating for teachers, and you're an administration in there, which probably you reached a point where you probably could support your family. And uh, did you feel like you had at least somewhat of a sane life, like you could, you know, not be twenty four seven because any job you can do that? Or was it pretty difficult to get to sane? No. Uh, so when I started there, it was actually I applied for a job I didn't get, but then they called me back and there was a temporary one and it was in communications, public relations, um, editor of a paper. I had never taken a journalism course. Never, I never took a journalism <laughs> course. I did it. My very first article I wrote, it was it looked like a business report versus a story. Uh, but I learned, I asked questions and then I became a speech writer and then I became a, a media spokesperson. I did, I just did. So I was always having, uh, I did leadership development, but then when I got to the managerial level, which for, from the outside looking in was that's, that is like golden, like there's not many spots. And that's when it was like, I'm financially, you know, in a great place. I have, you know, my future looks good all, but always working crazy hours. I mean, all like always working crazy hours. Um, One thing I think was, very significant. I thought as a hardworking parent, single parent, I was being a role model for my children. But I would have like people coming into my house, we'd have long meetings. I mean, I've always worked, you know, 60, 80, 100 hour weeks. That's just, you know, what I've done. And I can remember my son in high school, we're talking about college, and he wasn't sure if he wanted to go to college. And having not gone till I was in my early 30s, I said, but it opens doors. He, I said, look at me and by getting my degree, what I've been able to do. Now, just picture this. There's a knife slowly coming to me into my heart because mm. and I can get emotional thinking about this. I remember my son looking at me and saying, but mom, you're always working. Why would I want to be like you? Oh. And here I thought I was such a, you know, ideal role model. And I didn't have the balance. It killed me almost, but I needed to hear it. (laughs) Uh, It was an important lesson. And we just come at life. But that was, again, that's generational also. Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's easy to judge in hindsight, but as you were growing up, that was normal. You know, you work hard, you get ahead because you think you're doing your best for your family. And you could only know what you know based on the upbringing you have. You know, it's easy to look back, but you did the best you can. So how did, not to dwell on it too much, but how did you handle that with your son? Because that was, that, I mean, that's a, that would feel like a dagger to the heart. There's no question. How did you handle that? I don't know exactly, but I must have been successful because he ended up going to school. Okay. And <laughs> so I guess however strategy uh, I did, I and I also remember at a point, because he was a musician and he was at Berkeley College of Music, and at a point he was singing, like, why am I even here? Maybe I, you know, should just come home and, and drop out. And, and so, again, I, I found the letter I wrote to him, because we didn't do emails, and I wrote a letter, and I said, well, that would be great. I mean, if that's what you need to do, because again, I didn't go to school right away. If that's what you need to do, take a break. That's great. I would love another adult person in the house to help. Like, you know, I'm, I'm uh, on my own. I would love somebody to help with the cooking and cleaning and the shop. That would be awesome. <laughs> he, he stayed in school. <laughs> that was a very smart strategic letter. Yeah, I have a couple adult sons and a daughter. And yeah, that would, uh, certainly for the adult sons, that would be very effective. So as we shift here to kind of the, I guess, second act, if you will, for your life, you've got all these creative things bubbling around and I don't know, maybe a bit like lava beneath the surface, maybe you had a couple little mini volcanoes or, you know, geysers or whatever. It started poking through the, you know, the crusty surface, be surface, be practical. And in your 50s, maybe they came strong enough that you began to seriously consider a shift. So talk about you're in this great job. I think, I believe your boss said, hey, this is a job for life. You'll have retirement. It's the kind of job if you're practical, you never leave that kind of job. Job security, you know, uh, there's always going to be teachers, they're always going to need advocates, that's not going to go away. So talk about how that shift began to happen to, you know, really leads to where you are now. How did that happen? So I was achieved what I thought was my dream job and became uh, 
uh, a director of the group that I used to work in. It was almost immediate. It was, I thought I could make a difference and um, it wasn't happening. There were just so many roadblocks. Uh, so not only was I having trouble breathing because my creativity was being stifled, it was also my effectiveness. I've always thought I, I needed to make a difference in life and I was not able to do that. And uh, it was it was like within months. I mean, it, it just happened. It was uh, the volcano uh, erupted and I started losing sleep. I just knew I was in a bad place. So what happened next? So these volcanoes are going off. You're not feeling fulfilled in your job. Sometimes, you know, further up the chain is not always good. There's more bureaucracy, politics. In any, it doesn't matter what the organization is. There's always roadblocks and issues and challenges. And it's just the nature of human beings and bureaucracy. So that's happening. And so what did you begin to consider? What was all those little volcanoes going off? What, where was that heading you? Well, this is where I guess I would say it was my most major crucible moment. And it was uh, 3 a.m. Because I know exactly because I wasn't sleeping. It's 3 a.m. <laughs> and I'm thinking of my sons. The one is in finance, president of a, a company, very successful. The other, the musician had graduated at a recording studio, but he wasn't making money. So he's teaching himself additional skills, photography, videography, all online. And believe it or not, I started thinking about what he was doing. It sounded so exciting. And I got jealous. I got jealous of my own son. And this is the moment my life changed. I dared to ask myself, if I was young again, what would I want to be learning? Hypothetical question. The amazing thing was the answer came immediately to me, immediately, and it was fashion design. Don't ask me where it came, it came immediately. So I'm still not sleeping and I start researching programs and I'm going in to see what schools, what's available. And then I see uh, interior design. I'm like, well, maybe I should do that at my age. And then I went, no, Nancy, you're just dreaming. This is practical to stay where you're at. This isn't about being practical. This is about a fantasy if you were young. Well, I start researching it. I By the next week, I was in New York touring two of the top fashion schools and uh, signed up for a, a drawing class because I did not know how to draw illustrate, but I uh, start taking it the day of the one tour. And uh, the last one I took um, happened to be in my backyard in uh, Philadelphia, but I it was it was always there. And once I answered it, there was no going back. And I, and I walked away and uh, resigned. And I remember the executive director said, have you always wanted to do this? And I went, I never even dared to dream. Again, I was always being very successful, but doing what was needed in my life and for others. But once I opened the door and peeked in, I just, I had to go through it. And so when you went through it, what was that door? What door did you go through? So the good news is uh, maybe because of just the way my um, practical life, I've always been very fiscally conservative. So that very first job at a high school making, you know, just over $100 a week, I took a savings bond out of every paycheck so that I could have get my apartment after a year. So I was always saving when I went to work for the Education Association, even though it was temporary, I enrolled in the pension system. I didn't take vacation days. I didn't take sick days. So I was I had a little nest egg so that it's easy to say, oh, I won and I followed my dream and became a fashion designer. Well, it's because of all those decades before I had the opportunity and I took my life savings and I enrolled uh, in a three-year master's program at Drexel University. And one of the things that you said about that, Nancy, that I thought really speaks to how serious you were taking this, even though, as you say, it's a fantasy. The other school was like a one-year program, right? It was Parsons, which is very associated with Project Runway. And you and you just knew intuitively that you weren't going to get to learn, get your, your, your hands really in the fabric, as it were. You weren't going to get to learn quite as much in a year as you could learn in a three-year program. So you went for the more expensive, more in-depth program. Why did you make that choice? Well, fortunately, uh, so fortunately, when I found the one-year program at Parsons, again, one of the 
sometimes the top school uh, in the country. I also went to FIT. I had been just recently married and I was so excited because again, I'm very goal oriented. And I remember sitting at a bar and having dinner. And I said to my husband, I said, oh my God, I found the, I found the program. It's one year. I can get my associate's degree in one year. I'm going to become a fashion designer. And he goes, he's got a lot of nicknames for me. He goes, calm down, fireball. He says, I thought you're doing this for the love of learning. Why are you rushing the learning? Thank mm. you. Thank you, Ted. Because without hearing those words, I would have been at Parsons and one year program would not have been enough. But then I joke with him because then I enrolled in the three-year program and he lost his wife who was then doing 80-hour, <laughs> 100-hour school week. Uh, so I, and, you know, and you could see Drexel outside our window where we were uh, renting an apartment. And I'm like, <laughs> so yeah, uh, but I have such a, you know, supportive uh, team behind me. So I wanted to sort of dwell on this shift a bit because uh, here you are. So how old, how old were you when you started at Drexel? I was, I think I just was 58. I mean, that, that's astonishing. I'd say there's, hard, there's not that many people at that age. They would say, you know what, maybe I think of fashion, maybe something else, but it's too late. I'm too old. I missed my chance and that's just life. I mean, many would say that, but yet I love what you said earlier that you said something like, um, you don't think you'd ever asked, you, you never really dared, dared to dream. You know, I know you you said earlier, like a, a TED talk, you know, follow your dream, make fear your friend, which we'll get to the fear part, which is fascinating. But you, you never really asked yourself, what what does Nancy really want to do? It's 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 sort of an irrelevant question. Well, what's the practical thing to do? I've got to get a job, and then later on, I got to support two two kids. You know, I can't afford to be crazy. You know, I've got to feed them. I mean, you know, I've got to build a life for them. So, but you came to a point in which you actually, you dared, you dared to dream, you dared to say, and, you know, a lot of us think, well, my dreams don't matter. It's all about serving others. I mean, I mean, you serve a lot of people, but you can serve others out of the dream you have within. It's not either or, but often they think, okay, my life, my needs don't matter. It's all about my kids, all about my husband, all about my wife, or all about my employees, and I just want to be faithful, and my dreams and desires are irrelevant, because it's almost like I don't matter, or at least my dreams don't matter, but but you made that shift. I mean, many don't. So for those who may be listening, how, how, do you, how can you make that shift to saying, actually, I do matter, my dreams do deserve to be treasured? I mean, how did you make that shift? Because I think it's stunning. That's a great question. Uh, I always felt something was lacking. Like I, I, I didn't always. I, I, I just knew there was there was another life in me. I didn't understand it, but I, it was there. But I never, again, allowed myself to think about it. I mean, I was very successful. I was, you know, um, achieved a lot. I mean, people again would look at it and think of how successful. But there was still something deep inside that I knew was not being, um, there's a fire, you know, but it, it just wasn't allowed to uh, take off, you know, little. And and I, I remember um, my friends saying, well, you, you, you need a lot of little fires, you know, before the big one happens. I don't know how, what the, I can't remember the words, but it, I think it really was when I started at Drexel, it was, you would think I'd feel so out of place, but I felt like home. I found my home. Hmm. I felt like I found where this journey was supposed to take me. And my very first class was an art class. Why I almost didn't even try to do it because I was, I do, I'm still not a great illustrator, but I figured out a way to, to uh, get through the program. And I got there early because I didn't even get the tour of the school. And I remember a student walking in and I'm sitting on the one stool and there's a platform in the middle and he sits on the other side because, of course, I'm the teacher, right? And then the next one comes in, sits next to him. So I pick up my <laughs> things and I go and I sit with them, right? And I, I forgot that I looked different because I've, that's how much I felt like I was where I belonged. And 
it took a while, but when it, I brought so much with me, I brought so much life experience with me. And I think it served me so well, because again, when you talk about fear, I had nothing to fear in my designing because I knew there were so many more important things than whether or not I made the right cut or, you know, um, design something and how to redo it. I want to jump in just for a second, because this is a series on second act significance. What Nancy just described is the power of the second act. I felt like I was at home. I felt like she, all of these things that she didn't know where they were leading when she sort of felt the tug, the tug took her to the second act. And it's different for everybody what that second act is, but clearly this is the first half of what we're talking about here in this series, second act significance. You've arrived or are en route to arriving at your second act and the significance then comes from that. What's really funny is, you know, I guess we'll get into Project Runway, how a reality TV show was such a driving force <laughs> to take me on this path and to guide me there, uh, almost pushing me, which is just kind of ludicrous to think that. But I really, I, I really believe in the energy of the universe and the power of the universe. And from the, when I first watched the first episode, something something happened, and the universe was taking me somewhere. Tell us how Project Runway happened. You obviously were following it for a number of years. You're in Drexel, and then you decided, you know what, I'm going to go for it. Talk about that, because that's all, I mean, it's one thing to go to, design, to fashion school, that's incredible, but Project Runway, oh my gosh, that's got, how did that happen? How'd you get that idea, and what happened? And I know how it happened at age, I think I was just about to turn 50, was the first season. I remember watching it with my mother. And I remember watching and said, you know, if I had studied fashion and took my love of sewing as a child, I could have been on, I could be on this show. I just fell in love with this show. And I said, I, and why I would think that I'm 50 years old, I'm thinking that I could have been on that show. But that's, but it was there. It got planted in this crazy brain of mine. Fast forward, you know, I, I have this job. I'm also getting more into fashion. Again, having grown up 12 years wearing a, a school uniform and just making my things. I was apparently in my uh, professional life, I was considered fashionable. But it wasn't until I started thrifting and consigning um, that I got to really explore good fashion and high fashion and um, got to uh, appreciate it. So these were all, again, little steps. And so when I, as soon as I went into Drexel, I went, ah, now I can be on Project Runway. Now I'm 57, 58. Oh, and now I can be on Project Runway. Didn't tell a soul. Like nobody knew about this fantasy of mine. So I, and some people, again, it's a reality TV show, you know, in the fashion industry, it's, you know, there's a mixed review. I graduate. Now I'm 61. I'm going to be on Project Runway. I'm like, I better apply. I'm getting there. I'm getting, <laughs> so I apply right away without the experience. But I knew because of my age and uh, the first go around, I actually got an interview and I made it through a couple of the stages. Fortunately, I didn't get on. I made it to like the semifinals. And where some people would have thought that as a a failure, that just motivated me. And there was almost a relief. I'm like, this is great. I've got a year now to prepare. I took a very intense online draping class out of Paris. I signed up for couture uh, courses. I went over to London for two weeks and took at Central St. Martin's the top fashion school in the world. And I took an intensive class. I start training like an athlete. And during that time, I spent two years in physical therapy because while at school, I developed arthritis in my neck. And so I wake up every day in pain, but the, the being active actually helps me um, through the day. So I start training uh, as an athlete to, um, get back on. And I, I knew like there was something that said, I am going to be on Project Runway. Makes no sense. But there was something there. And I remember the first time when I went, I had to do an, uh, a video and I called my son up. I got a videographer son. This is going to be great. Right. I, I'm going to have a cool video. And I said, I have a favor. I need to make a video. When I told him what it was for, he said, he begged me 
not to go on. He said, please, mom, don't, don't do it. And there were two reasons. One, who wants their mother on a reality TV? And the other one is he has watched and witnessed the um, pain as a uh, survivor of adult bullying. And he has seen me in pain um, having been bullied and he didn't want to subject me to that because mm-hmm. it's a cruel world out in the so, uh, social media. Um, and he was trying to protect me. Did I listen to him? No, I just got a friend to do my video. <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes people give you good advice. Sometimes they give you advice because they really love and care for you. And sometimes it's good to listen. And sometimes you need to know when not to listen. Thank you so much for your input. I love you, but I'm going to go for it anyway. So, you know, that that's okay. So I, I want to, because I want to make sure we get your story here. Because, you know, I mean, it's definitely... I'm curious about what you were just talking about, but so Project Runway, the second time um, you, you know, almost on an athletic level of uh, uh, research and um, on Project Runway, you got pretty much all the way, I think what runner up, I think was it on the, but during that, during that Project Runway, I feel like you found your calling, call it divine calling from karma, the universe, so tell listeners how you picked up something that other people didn't want. You know, it's like, oh, I'm, I, don't, I don't want this. But you said, yes. What was that? What was your yes to? So when I went to Project Runway, I mean, I actually was shot up like twice in the arm because, you know, I had nerve. I had rotator cuff things. So right. I was like, I didn't know how long I would survive. And every challenge I got there and I felt, I felt blessed. I mean, when I got on the runway, it was just like, I, and and I could have been gone home. I looked around and I just took it in and Mm -hmm. I felt blessed that I had made it. But once I was there and I'm like, okay, you made it. Well, guess what? You're not ready to go home yet. And, uh, and I just stayed so focused on not worrying about other people, but just what I could do. So one of the challenges it was, it's called client challenges and they bring outside people. Well, for our client challenge, there was Olympiads and Paralympiads. And they come down the runway and there is Tatiana McFadden, uh, a Paralympiad in a wheelchair. She is the world's fastest female marathoner success story in the world. There's actually a federal law, Tatiana's law. And I saw her and I jumped out of my seat and I started to pull that energy of the universe, looking, looking, and like, I need to get her. I need, this is why I'm on Project Runway. Like I knew it, that moment, I knew it. And I asked her, I said, did you see me? Like, just like, I must have looked like a crazy woman just staring at her. And they were randomly pulling names out. And when I got her, I screamed of joy. Like I... I, I'm reliving that. And I know some of my other designers were probably so, I see, I, this is my problem as a competitor. I call them the other designers. They were competitors, right? <laughs> we were competing, but the other designers, they were probably relieved not to have to deal with that. But I knew, I knew enough from my little experience at Drexel, um, uh, studying a little bit about adaptive design that I had to approach this differently. So you have 30 minutes to sketch the look well, I knew I had to split it not only in the aesthetics, but functionality. So I was asking her function. And this is a one-day challenge. And they knew what they wanted. They, they had plenty of time to prepare. And this was supposed to be for the um, Tokyo Olympics, red carpet kind of look. She wanted a train. She wanted this. She, I mean, she had so many things. And I'm like, great. And at that point, Project Runway did not exist. I was there to fulfill Tatiana's fantasy, not only aesthetically, but function wise and that's what i did and that changed it changed my life i have co-hosted 110 episodes ish of this show and nancy that story that you just told is the first time and i still have them it's the first time i got chills to hear you tell that story on the on the heels of everything that you've talked to or about up till then, I, I, I'm still, it still has physically moved me to hear you talk about that because it's not just you finding your second act, you finding all the, the answers to all those questions you had since you were a little girl who was sewing, but you poured it in to helping other people. 
And I can see, I can hear in your voice, hopefully listeners, you can hear in Nancy's voice, just how moved she was by that experience. And I'm still, I'm going to let Warwick talk because I'm still moved by it myself. No, that's excellently well said, Gary. I mean, you had ever since you were young, just this, you know, the, there were embers there waiting to burst into a forest fire for fashion. But he, you, you connected fashion to, I would say, a God-given calling, a universe-given calling to empower you know, uh, those uh, who are not as fortunate, those with disabilities, those who may be marginalized in society. So it's, you've got your creative fashion uh, talents and desires, and you found a way to help people. And while other people might have said, phew, I'm glad it wasn't me, you were like leaping for joy. And I love what you said. It wasn't about, oh, gee, you know, if I do a good job with this Paralympian, this will put me on the map and it'll help my business get to the next level. That was the furthest thought from your mind. I can help this woman, is what you were thinking. I can help this Paralympic athlete. You know, I can help her feel better about herself and empower her. And you were doing it for all the right reasons, which I think is just is just wonderful. I mean, does that kind of make sense? I mean, I want listeners to hear your motivation. It wasn't about fame and success. It was to help that person. I'm just reliving it. I'm getting very emotional because because it was such a defining moment. Um, fashion can be really powerful. It's not just about clothes. And I think because so many times in my life, I didn't feel like I fit in, you know, having been bullied, feeling um, damaged or just who knows what has driven me. And I, again, I didn't know, again, understand why I had this need um, to be a relevant designer. Even at Drexel, people always ask me, what are you going to do when you graduate? I think it's because like, what's this old person doing here? Is this a hard program? And my gift was not to answer the question because I was goal-oriented. I said, I just want to be relevant. There's got to be a reason why this 61-year-old person gets to be a fashion designer. It can't be about making more clothes. It's got, there's got to be a reason I'm doing it. And it was that moment on Project Runway. It was like, yes, this is it. Um, understanding that fashion is powerful and everybody should have the ability to express themselves and their individuality and get empowered or feel beautiful from the inside outside. And if fashion's the way they do it, why do they not get that opportunity? I, I can remember um, talking to one of the judges after Project Runway with another thing I did. And she said, oh, even on Project Runway and what you're doing now, you're a decade ahead. You're the future, you're a decade ahead. And I want, and all of a sudden I used to think, oh, that would be great to be called the future of fashion. And I'm like, no, I don't want to be the future of fashion. I want to be the now of fashion. Why should the disabled or anybody with a medical issue or with a different type body have to wait for the future? Why can't it be now? And um, that's that's what happened. And it impacted my finale collection. Um, it impacted when I um, finished the show, even during the pandemic. Um, it's 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 really uh, my compass of what I I need and should be doing. You know what what you're saying there, Nancy. To me, is the true life of significance. It's not about power. Fame. It's not about oh, you you can be the future of fashion. Thing. It's almost like I could care less. I'm focused on helping and empowering these people. You know, I mean, you know, not to get too religious here, but certainly, you know, Jesus talks about you know caring for the least of these, the the despised, the marginalized. I'm sure in other religions, you know, there's that kind of thought. Is um, you were motivated to care for people that others maybe don't care about. It was all about helping people. If that brings you awards, that's fine. That's okay. But it wasn't about, oh, Nancy Volpe, uh, you know, Barringer is the future of fashion. It's like, okay, whatever. It's like, I wouldn't say it's meaningless, but it's it's like a, a drop in the bucket compared to helping that Paralympian and other people who, you know, people may, you know, look down upon. So I think that's to me what a true life of significance is. It's using every creative talent that you were born with in service of a greater good. And to me, as we've said on this podcast and elsewhere, 
everybody wants joy and fulfillment. Everybody on the planet. Well, how do I get it? Well, it doesn't come from being a narcissist and just getting rich for the sake of it, because you will not be happy and joyful. Every psychologist on the planet will tell you it doesn't work. The only way to be joyful and fulfilled is to do what you're doing. Doesn't mean everybody has to be in fashion design, but conceptually, you're using your creative talents in service of others that you feel a universal God-given calling to help. And so that gives you, I'm sure, joy and fulfillment, not to put words in your mouth, it's probably hard to describe. Is that a fair description <laughs> of you, if you don't mind me putting it that way? No, that, that that's perfect. I mean, it does bring me joy and fulfillment. And then again, that's, you, you want to be happy. I, I can remember always saying, why is life so hard? Why is life so hard? It just seemed like life was so hard. Um, even when you're being successful, it's hard. And even though I was working the 80 hours, 100 hours in pain every day, life wasn't hard. Life was being fulfilled. But I also believe within me is that, again, I don't know what happens later and all that. I, uh, But I just feel like you need to leave this universe, this planet, your life, having done something to help others, to to just have some mark left that you made a difference, even if it's in a few lives beyond your immediate, um, you know, family for me. And uh, with where I always knew there was something else in me that I was, that was unfulfilled. That's where this has taken me. Like I know as much as I'm having so many roadblocks and again, the, the pandemic has impacted all of us. I mean, Thursday, March 12th, was the finale on the air. I was supposed to go to, and you know, where I got to celebrate. I was on top of the world. I was going to go to Nova Scotia for an adaptive um, uh, a festival. I had this. I did a lot of charity work, all this stuff. I have not seen a client or created a new thing with a client in over two years. Mm. Um, I have a, do a lot of um, caretaking for some high-risk people in my family. And so safety has been first. So all that, went away where I thought I was going to be. It disappeared. But then other doors opened up. I had other tragedies. I was displaced. There was a fire where I was living and had my studio. We were all displaced. I had nowhere to go. And right in the middle of the pandemic, there was a premature, oh, my granddaughter was born. I became in this tightest little safety pod. But all this happened again for a reason. And as silly as it seems, like if you really allow yourself to look beyond and and be open, like be open. So here's the fire. I have my little team of a couple people in trash bags, putting all my designs, all my clothes, personal things in trash bags, getting it out of this building over a one week. We had five days, um, one freight elevator, no electricity. And I found a rental. I was fortunate that I could do that. And it had all these entrances so we could all be safe. But now I have like a garage filled with everything and it's a mess. And then what happened was I went, oh my word, I have too much stuff. I have like too much stuff. Look at all these clothes I have from all this thrifting and consigning. What am I going to do with all this? And then because I wasn't making money through fashion with the pandemic, I thought, well, I'm going to sell my personal clothes and designs. They're amazing to raise money to create an adaptive line for the disabled. And one morning I woke up and I said, why are you waiting? I start researching and I decided I wasn't going to sell it elsewhere. I try to do my own platform. I start researching and nowhere in the world that I can find, and which is really hard in fashion, is there a resale? And again, this is luxury items that care and um, will adapt the items for the disabled as part of just the, the service. And that's, so that's fire and having all these clothes and everything stuffed in bags and unpacking saying, I have too much stuff. I'm going to sell it to raise money. That's opened up this whole world of the vault uh, and trying to really advocate. Um, and that's where I'm at. You know, it's, it's, I'm starting at the bottom. It's rough because I can't go to, I, again, I don't go to events yet. It's very, um, isolated in some ways, but um, I just had this great opportunity. I just named a finalist uh, for a brand new retail concept for Fashion Group International, where they've honored top 
uh, designers. So things might happen, but again, it was what somebody thought a challenge, a tragedy, a fire. And then I moved in the new place and I've had two tornadoes. I've had a hurricane. <laughs> I've had a collapsed ceiling in, in here that just keeps coming, but it's okay. It's all, that's all okay. And I don't know why, um, but I can keep smiling and well, it's what, Mostly. What's remarkable about what you're saying is you're turning setbacks into blessings, blessings for others. I mean, that is, that's taking creativity almost to the ultimate level. You know, you have a really remarkable story of hope and, and meaning and you you live in the moment, you love fashion, but you're using fashion to empower and help people. And it seems like you've had setbacks in the recent years, but you can still smile. That's remarkable. Rather than, oh, woe is me. I was on the cusp of, I don't know what, but okay, stuff happens. What can we do with it? You can still smiling. So I think, I don't know, your, your attitude is, is, is really remarkable. I think we can all learn from your, your creativity, your adaptability. If, if I can misuse that word, if you don't mind, you are very adaptable in your thinking and your ability to turn tragedy into triumph, if you will. You just stole my line that I wrote down. You can see it here. It's on the bottom right there. An adaptive, how wonderful that someone who works in adaptive fashion has lived an adaptive life. I've been waiting for for 15 minutes to say that and you took it. Sorry about Good that. Good for you. Sorry. No, that, says, that right there says just how inspirational you are, Nancy. And this is the time in the show where I would normally say, Something like the captain's turned on the fasten seatbelt side and we've begun our, de our descent. We got to land the plane. But instead, in honor of Project One Way, I'm going to say that sound you just heard was Tim Gunn saying, make it work. Um, so so uh, we're, we're at a point where we're going to wrap up uh, here in a minute. But I want to say one thing before I let you tell listeners how they can find out more about your work um, and about you. I've said this a lot on the show, um, which is always a blessing. I've I've asked listeners to go back and watch the video on YouTube so they can see the guest smile even as they are talking about some truly difficult crucibles. And I thought I was going to say that about you, but they don't have to go watch it on video because they can hear it in your voice. Your smile comes through your voice as you're describing really tough things that have happened to you. You're smiling because I think you're in this in that, that second act of significance and it puts the other stuff in perspective. It didn't happen to you, it happened for you. And you've leveraged that to help other people. So I would be remiss if I did not say this. So how can people find out more about you and your collections, Nancy? So, well, there's a couple different ways. Um, I'm on Instagram. It's the Vault by Volpe Berenger and also Nancy Volpe Berenger. And I also have uh, matching websites. My original designs are on nancyvolpeberenger.com or the Vault by Volpe Berenger, uh, com. There's also um, channeled into uh, Facebook. Um, you can uh, contact me, email me uh, the same way. I, I do have to tell you, as much as my son feared social media, Social media has been my blessing um, through the pandemic. And so I welcome anyone to reach out. I get such inspirational messages from around the world. I answer every one of them. And they have kept me, they have kept the smile when the days you don't want to get out of bed and it just feels too hard. People connect with me and I so appreciate it. As a guy whose last name is Schneeberger, let me make sure that listeners know how exactly to to spell your name. So when they go www dot spell it out for them so they can get you. So it's uh, Nancy Volpe V is in Victor O L P E Berenger B E R I N G E R, and again it's the Vault by Volpe Berenger. Fantastic. Warwick, I don't know how you're going to find just one last question. It's your show. You can ask five last questions if you want, but it's it's back to you. Yeah, it's all good. Well, Nancy, thank you so much. I mean, what's really inspiring, everything you're doing is inspiring. I mean, you have this comment, follow your dreams, make fear your friend. Uh, you have, I think, another site I saw, the Age 59 site, uh, celebrating stories of people who are 59 and over. So, 
for those who might feel like, you know, life's passed me by, it's too late, talk about, you know, why they should think differently, whether they're in their 40s, 50s, 60s, heck, 70s or 80s, who knows, whatever the age is. What do you, what's the message of hope that you would give them sort of in, along the lines of follow your dreams, make for your friend? What's a message of hope for those who feel like I'm too old, uh, second act never going to happen to me. It's just, I need to stuff those dreams deep, deep down and not let them out. What's a message of hope for people like that? Well, I think one key thing is to surround yourself with positive people, believers, people who believe in you. Again, when my one son discouraged me from doing it, He's out of the picture. I surrounded myself <laughs> with people who believed me. He believes in me now. He's all there. But to to follow these dreams and and you can they can be small. It it's it's surround yourself with positive people. Being positive, especially in the world we live in, is extremely difficult. And I would say that's key. And the fearlessness. Again, when Elaine Welteroth, the judge, was promoting the show for our season and she was talking about this senior person on the show, she said she's fearless. Somebody says, you know, she said makes fear your friend. And I didn't realize I did that all along. When I was that little 11, 12-year-old signing up for the sewing class, the other class I signed up for as an extremely shy person was a public speaking class. Huh? What? <laughs> makes no sense. That was a fear. I, so I've always challenged myself and where I have been afraid, it hasn't stopped me. So it's okay to feel the fear, but don't let it stop you. And, and again, surround yourself with positivity, even if it's just from yourself. Even if you don't have other people, write down words of positivity. Believe in yourself. When you stop believing in yourself, that's where um, it's hard to uh, keep going. I've been in the communications business long enough to know and the final word on the subject has been spoken. And Nancy, you just spoke it. Uh, listeners, thank you for spending this time with us on Beyond the Crucible. We know, uh, we discussed it here, how difficult crucibles can be, how painful they can be. Uh, we also know the power. We've heard the power. I, I felt the power of, of Nancy's second act significance. It is never too late to start a second act. And she is uh, inspiring, rejoicing proof and evidence of that. Not just to have a second act, but to have it be truly, deeply, movingly, meaningfully significant. So until the next time we are together, do remember that uh, your crucible experiences are not the end of your story. Uh, in fact, they can be the beginning of a new story uh, if you learn the lessons from them and apply them moving forward. And the reason why that's true is that where you will be taken as you learn the lessons of your crucible and move forward is to a place that you may not even know what it is at the moment. Nancy didn't know where her place was going to be when she felt the, the tug to, to go, to move, to change. But where it's led her and where it can lead you is to a life of significance.